the unicameral update. Published by the Unicameral Information Office under the direction of the Clerk of the Legislature. Welcome to the Interim Catch-Up. The goal of these bonus episodes is to provide perspective on the intricacies of the Nebraska Unicameral and the people who make up the 49 members via one-on-one interviews. Welcome, Senator. Could you please introduce yourself for the listeners? Hi, I'm Danielle Conrad. I represent North Lincoln's Fight in 46 Legislative District. Senator, the first question I have for you is, what aspect of being a senator did you not expect going in? Or what would the average Nebraskan not realize about Nebraska state politics? Mm, Wow, that's such an interesting question. So I had the privilege and opportunity to work as a public policy advocate as a young attorney before I entered the legislature. So I was very familiar with the basic process and some of the issues that I had been working on to impact working families before I ran and was honored to be elected and serve. So I thought I knew everything about the legislature when I was elected and first started my my service back in 2007. I was quickly disabused of that naive thinking when I joined the body and I had not previously really had the context or was able to fathom how different the tenor and the tone of dialogue was behind the glass, both on the record during committee hearings and, of course, in floor debate, but the private conversations that happened with colleagues across the state and across the political spectrum that also really helped to shape their thinking on different issues before the body and were very enriching in terms of building relationships. Things that maybe didn't affect a particular bill or a particular vote, but gosh, I got to know Senator X, Y, or Z, and they had a granddaughter who was really interested in something I was interested in, or they had a unique professional background or experience on something that I didn't know about before. And really opening those dialogues, really getting that kind of insider information, you know, you think you know a lot as an active participant or a casual observer, but it's It's just, it's very, very different when you have the opportunity to have peer-to-peer conversations with other state leaders. It's usually a different level of dialogue because you're peers and you're perhaps not as guarded as you might be otherwise. And you can talk a bit more freely or creatively as you're trying to work through problems. And those conversations and that trust is really interesting invaluable to making the process work better to effectuate good policy. So I think I perhaps had underestimated the level of access that comes to other state policymakers once you become a peer to policymakers versus working around or in the legislature otherwise. So that was that was something that that maybe I hadn't thought about before I transitioned to service. And then I think the other piece would just be really remembering back and reflecting upon, again, knowing that I had a pretty good understanding of the process and a lot of the issues and had some existing relationships with other senators, but just 
how long it really takes to really understand the nuance and the application of the rules, to really see beyond just how a bill becomes a law on paper, where the inflection points are, where you can or should or shouldn't burn political capital in trying to advance your agenda or issue. And then really, in addition to those complexities, building the relationship with your colleagues, and then really going deeper on a policy perspective on a host of really important public policy areas. And of course, you you can't know everything about everything. But in order to represent your constituents, you have to have at least a rudimentary understanding of the issues that are coming before the body and particularly maybe emanating from committees that you don't serve on so that you can make smart votes. But that's everything from education policy to water policy to tax policy to criminal justice policy and the list goes on and on and on and on and it just it takes a long time to develop kind of a body of knowledge in regards to the substantive issues see how that interfaces with process and rules and then you know layer that with personal relationship and and the political considerations as well and I remember talking to my colleagues who we had the honor to serve together for you know four eight years as we were being term limited out and talking about, gosh, we felt like we were just getting good at this job when when we were forced into what I like to call constitutional retirement, uh, being term limited. Uh, and so it it really, really does take years to, to really get up to speed on all of those different component parts to make sure that you can be the strongest uh, voice you can for your constituents and for the state. And so those kind of two, two reflections might be what was most surprising to me about becoming a, a member of the legislature, just the, the complexity and, and the plethora of information you need to digest to be really effective in this role. And then, you know, the warmth and candor of the personal relationships and personal conversations that, that enhance that work. It was evident later in the session that you began to prioritize the relationship-building aspects of the legislative process. What benefit does strong relationship-building among senators provide? And how do you go about building those relationships? Yeah, so I think relationships are so important, of course, for life and, and for work, but particularly for political life and work. And a couple of things really, I think, influenced my thinking in regards to prioritizing building relationships with my colleagues and other stakeholders. One, you know, as more than a casual observer of the legislature for many, many years before I became a member, I watched how the legislature conducted itself. And and not always perfectly, of course, but more times than most in a very collegial fashion, taking to heart the unique aspects of our nonpartisan unicameral legislature and running and serving without allegiance to partisan factions or, or actors. And I saw how so many incredible statesmen and stateswomen in our state legislative history were able to rise above the, the toughest issues 
hours of the day that they were taking up and still find ways to stay principled and true to their constituents and their commitments, but to stay also in relationship with their colleagues when they had disagreements. So that observation definitely shaped my thinking. Serving when I served as a member of the class, kind of in that first group of term limit, we were in such a unique position because there were about half of us that came in that had this fire as new, young, in many instances, energetic, fresh senators who brought a ton of energy and ideas into the body. But that was complemented and both tempered by the other half of the legislature that we joined that were really seasoned veterans of the Nebraska unicameral. And the mentorship and guidance that they provided to our class about how to protect the institution, how to be effective in this role was absolutely formative and absolutely invaluable. I remember, and I've told this to my, my present colleagues, even senators I really had significant and serious disagreements with on a policy or political spectrum or issue, they didn't want to see colleagues fail. And they would take time to share feedback and ideas about, wow, what you did here was really smart. Wow, this didn't really resonate. Maybe think about reshaping it this way the next time this issue comes before your committee or on the floor. Here's where the real power is, or here's where the real leverage is, or you might be forgetting this. So that kind of mentorship and guidance and friendship definitely was formative as well. And then a senior senator who I really admired and cared about told me very early in my career, I had sought an assignment on the Appropriations Committee and was lucky enough to have the ability to serve there during my prior eight years of service. But what she told me was, in addition to being a new senator, you're also going to have some challenging dynamics being on appropriations. That is very powerful. That is a very important position to have, but you're going to be isolated from your colleagues in a lot of ways because when you serve on appropriations, that's your committee assignment every day. Other colleagues are, are transitioning between different jurisdictional committees and are hearing different issues and building different relationships. So while in some ways you have perhaps more power or different power serving on appropriations, you're also going to be very isolated from the other members because you're not in service with them on other committees. So it's more important for you to get out when you're pushing your legislative agenda from your, the personal bills that you bring forward or when you're working on other issues that hit the floor, you're not going to have its deepest relationship with your colleagues. So find something. It can be something small. It can be something large to work with every single member on. Find that one thing and then build from there. And it will either help you to build from there for issues that maybe aren't even on the horizon yet, or it will be that one thing that you can hang on to and be a touchstone and go back to. And I, of course, did not heed that advice perfectly, but I do think about it a lot. I did. I thought about it a lot in my previous eight years, and I thought about it a ton <laughs> in this legislative session. So, you know, whether it is, 
is working on open government issues with Senator Albright, who I have significant disagreements with on a lot of other policy issues. That's an area that we've been able to find consensus on. And I think that's really powerful and really cool, whether it's able to find common ground and consensus with Senator Brewer on key voting rights issues, which we've been able to do, which I also think is very powerful and very cool. Those are, you know, just a couple of examples. But again, imperfectly, but I've tried to find at least something to work with each of my colleagues on. And that helps to open up conversations that helps to get to know each other better. And then you you can kind of build from there. And if you can't find consensus on other issues, it grounds you in a constructive um, relationship. And and I think that's really important. And I think it's also important that we don't we don't divorce our humanity from our rancorous politics. And I think about the example that I want to set for my children and even if they have serious disagreements with classmates or with us or other people in their world, I want them to conduct themselves in a way that is still respectful to the dignity of each person they encounter. So I have significant disagreements with a lot of my colleagues, but I respect their service and the sacrifice they make to be here. And so I think little things like saying good morning, having lunch together, maybe you compliment what they're wearing that day, maybe you check in about something cool their kids did, maybe you're just around the water cooler visiting about weekend plans. Those kinds of things are important to fostering relationships. And those things all play into when you're in the middle of high stakes negotiations, being able to have an open dialogue, being able to have credibility with colleagues, being able to show that you can keep a clear head even when things get hot. And all of that kind of work, which is part of my leadership style and also, you know, very deliberative to to make sure to stay present and to make sure to reach beyond myself and those that think similarly to me, I think has helped me to be a very effective leader in a very challenging political dynamic. And having credibility with my colleagues who are on the progressive side because of our shared values, and then also having credibility with my friends who are on the conservative side because they see how hard I'm working to keep an open dialogue and being respectful of their position. From a public perspective, I think there may be some mystery or hostility surrounding the lobby and their influence on senators. As someone who has spent significant time both inside of and behind the glass, what is the relationship between the legislature and the lobby like, and what makes a good lobbyist? You know, I, I've talked about this before. It's it's really fun to dunk on lobbyists, right? They've got kind of this negative connotation for a lot of different reasons, kind of shrouding or surrounding their work. And not all of that is for no reason, right? But that being said, I think one thing that I try and keep in mind about lobbying is, number one, it's a constitutionally protected activity. So like it or don't like it, it is aligned and in line with the First Amendment and First Amendment freedoms. Citizens have a right to organize, to associate, and to petition their government. That's essentially what lobbying is. And lobbyists come in all different kinds of shapes and sizes and flavors, right? You have lobbyists that 
are representing grassroots groups. You have lobbyists that are representing very severely underfunded kind of entities. And then you also have what I think most people think about when they think about a lobbyist in their head is very sophisticated political operatives that are representing very well-resourced clients that have a lot of business before the legislature and have a lot at stake financially and otherwise. And so I try and keep in mind, everybody has right to participate in the process. That is a First Amendment right. That being said, I think it's important that you as a state senator are always thinking through what the influence or the agenda might be when anybody asks you to take a position on anything, whether that's a member of a different branch of government, whether that is a paid lobbyist, whether that is a colleague. Why are they trying to influence my vote on this issue in this way? To think critically about why that ask is coming. And then to really do your due diligence as a senator and say, okay, I understand why you're asking me to take this position. You're representing a client who has this interest. What's the other side of it? What's the unintended consequences? Who's on the other side? What have other states shown when they moved down this path? So once the lobbyist makes a connection or asks you to take a position or shares information or ideas, it's your job as a senator not just to nod your head and take that information in and regurgitate it. It's your job as a senator to really do your due diligence and to push that lobbyist to learn more about what they're not telling you and how to seek information from other perspectives. The lobbyists who do their job well in Nebraska, and of course they can't speak to other states' experiences or on the federal level, the ones that are the most well-established are well-established for a reason. They're very sophisticated when it comes to understanding law and policy and politics. They are very successful at building personal relationships. And they're, they have staying power because they bring credible information forward. And I don't know of lobbyists in Nebraska that have stuck around very long who engaged in a lot of shady tactics or who did some sort of underhanded kind of shenanigans or tried to influence things in an unethical way. I, I do think that the lobby has grown more powerful in the term limits dynamic, and that is a detriment to the people's branch and to the legislature. But lobbying overall is not all bad and should not be seen that way. But we do need to remember our role as senators is to take information a lobbyist provides to us and really, really think about why they're asking it, us to take that position and really, really pushing back to ask about what they're not telling us. That's absolutely part of our job. Lobbyists can also be a really valuable source of information in getting information from the front lines. Their clients who might be in healthcare or education or business have important insight as to how policy plays out when we adopt it. And so recounting that kind of experience from the front lines can provide a very important connection to policymaking. They also typically have access to data or information that maybe we don't have at our fingertips. And in the hustle and bustle of session or a fast moving negotiation, that information can be very powerful and very helpful if you sort through it correctly, right? But overall, I think that lobbyists 
have a constitutionally protected right to do their job. I think the ones in Nebraska that I've worked with that are well-established are very credible in their approach, and they can bring a lot of beneficial aspects to policymaking. But even though we are working within a, a similar environment, we can never forget our role as the people's elected representatives to look skeptically at people who seek to peddle influence and remember that our vote should be clearly aligned with our district and the best interests of the state of Nebraska for the short and long term. And those are just kind of some of the considerations I think about when I'm thinking about how to interface with lobbyists and then think through their role in the legislative dynamic. Those who watched the 2023 legislative session would often see you craft legal arguments on the mic, both for and against legislation. What influence does your legal background have on your legislative career? And what is the importance of crafting a legally significant legislative history? My experiences, of course, as mom, of course, as a former state senator, but of course, as an attorney, really influenced my legislative approach. And one thing that was so appealing to me about becoming a lawyer and going to law school was when I got that political bug, I started to think through and observe who was a successful leader that I admired. And I recognized that a lot of people who were very successful in the political realm had a legal background. And I quickly recognized how important that was for somebody like me who came from a working class family. My dad was a cop. My mom was a teacher. They weren't particularly political. So I wasn't coming from a political family or a wealthy family. And I had to kind of figure out how to, to chart my own path. And it seemed like a lot of different avenues kind of went through law school in one direction or another. So that was kind of why I was excited after graduating from the University of Nebraska with a poli-sci degree, and you can't just graduate with an undergrad degree and be a political scientist, right? And I really wasn't interested in being a political scientist. I went to law school here at the university, and that was such a formative experience. But it also was so important to me from both a substantive and technical perspective, which is where your question started, but also another important dynamic came into play. So being a young senator and a young woman senator and a young progressive woman senator, a bit older in the tooth in this term of service, of course, but having that law degree and training and experience helped to elevate my credibility very, very quickly with my colleagues in the legislature during my previous service and in this service where we're seeing less and less lawyers in the body, actually, which is, is an interesting dynamic as well. But you have just the training and experience around the nuts and bolts of legislation just immediately as part of your thought process and at your fingertips. You know how to do research in a really high level. And you're also trained to craft and effectuate powerful arguments on behalf of your clients or the issues that you're working on. So having the training from the research perspective, the knowledge from kind of the substantive and technical perspective, and then that training from an oral advocacy perspective 
really helped me to be an effective state senator in my first two terms and this year. And for the most part, you have such limited time to make your point during your floor speeches. So you have to organize it well to really be effective. And usually that includes kind of a bigger or broader overview, sometimes a typical kind of cadence or technique with with my floor speeches is I usually start to try and expand the lens or the umbrella about what the discrete bill before the body might be. So say it's a technical bill in regards to making some changes for a school funding formula. That's great. We need to go deep on that nuance and figure out the details. But we also can't forget why we're talking about it. We're talking about it to advance, improve, enhance, strengthen our great public schools. So first kind of doing that big picture kind of view about why this bill is important, what this issue is, connecting the dots for Nebraskans who might be watching at home. And then after you set the table, so to speak, kind of starting to work through the technical aspects or get a little deeper into the weeds or make a few points about what you like or are concerned about from a policy, legal, or practical perspective, and then usually kind of end with a summation or a call to action in an attempt to persuade your colleagues uh, to listen to your position on the bill and or set up negotiations or amendments as the bill moves through the process. So that's just a little bit about my style and my thinking. The other thing is when I was in law school, I realized very quickly how much I was excited by oral advocacy and appellate advocacy. And I was excited to be a member of the law school's moot court team. And that really helped to sharpen my skills in terms of making your case when you're giving speeches or or trying to be persuadable to decision makers. But it also was super formative because what was cool about that experience was the year I was on the moot court team, our problem was in relation to the death penalty and capital punishment. And you have to prepare equally as hard on both sides of that issue. Because when you walk into the competition, they flip a coin and they say, you're arguing for or against the death penalty today. And that really pushed me to think critically about the other side of every single argument. And A, challenge my own preconceived notions that I might have about an issue. B, see relevance and legitimacy in other people's perspective on an issue. And then also to do really sound opposition research, to know where folks were gonna be coming from who had a different viewpoint from me so that I could start to effectuate a counterpoint, so to speak, in a, in a smart way. So those experiences as a lawyer and working on the moot court team really helped to kind of shape my style in terms of questions I ask in committee and, and my floor speeches. The other thing that I try and keep in mind, and this is like very inside baseball, <laughs> is that dependent upon the issue before us, let's say, for example, It's a controversial issue that I think is going to spark litigation. First, I'm going to look at what the landscape looks like. So is there any chance based upon the makeup of the body that we can stop a measure that I'm imposed to? 
yes or no. That's kind of where you start the calculation. If yes, then you really, really want to help to make your case and, you know, shape the narrative and provide support and cover to your colleagues who are moving in the same direction. If no, I think perhaps it's more important to make your case from the legislative um, debate perspective, because much like a judge would write a dissent in a case before them, if they weren't able to persuade enough of their colleagues to come along with them, it's important to let Nebraskans know that their legislature doesn't speak with one voice on one issue. It's important to help to build power along the way and give voice to sometimes unpopular or controversial perspectives in the people's branch. And it's also important to build a record for future legislators or for courts where some of that controversial legislation may be subject to litigation. So when I think that's going to happen, I want to make sure that I'm as tight as possible on lifting up court decisions, lifting up key aspects of Nebraska law or Nebraska constitutional provisions, lifting up similar litigation from our sister states that may be relevant or applicable, and really start to build that record. Of course, from a statutory construction perspective, the legislation itself will first be examined on its face. Only if it's found to be vague or impermissible otherwise will a court start to tick through that legislative history and really start to look at those different nuggets. But it does happen more than people might think. And it's pretty exciting and awesome when something that you lift up in legislative history later influences a court's thinking or even their ultimate decision. So when people say, I'm going to say this for the record, and some of our colleagues maybe roll their eyes or kind of laugh laugh or kind of shrug their shoulders and say like, why are they doing that? They're doing that because it matters. It matters not only from a legal perspective and a potential litigation perspective, but also from a historical perspective and a public policy for formulation perspective and a political organizing and power building perspective. So we can never forget, even on our hardest days in the legislature, where we pour in our hearts and we come short on a vote on something we really, really care about. What an awesome and incredible and unique privilege it is to have a voice, to have a vote, and to be able to represent your constituents and other points of view in this record building. It really matters. It absolutely matters. And even if you don't carry the day, it helps to set up opportunities for thoughtful progress in the future. And we've seen that play out in our history, in our politics, in our jurisprudence, where once unpopular viewpoints were limited to dissent, later became the law of the land. As a state senator, how do you juggle the responsibilities of the position while also balancing career and home life? Well, I think that the the juggling act is, again, imperfect. And I know many of my colleagues uh, are in a similar boat where we're trying our best every day to be great wives and husbands and parents and neighbors and active in community, but also really to make the commitment 
to put in the time and do the work to be an effective state leader. So like working parents everywhere, I think there's always a balancing act, a juggling act to, you know, try and attend to your professional responsibilities and try to attend to things at home. I think some days I do it better than others. I do think that overall, a, a couple of things. One, proximity. I'm blessed to represent a district that literally is a few blocks from the Capitol. And so I live in North Lincoln and can get to the Capitol within five minutes. And that was so beneficial. During my previous term of service, I had my first child when I was in the legislature. And so that proximity just helped me to spend more time with her, to have her here with me when I needed to take a boat or do something. And then today, I can take my kids to school in the morning and be home for dinner every night because I live five minutes from the Capitol after putting in a full day. So that is a very practical consideration that that helps me strike the right balance a lot and I'm very grateful for and I think about my colleagues who travel great distances and put in a lot of windshield time away from both work and family to be here and so I just I don't have to contend with that extra layer which helps a lot the other thing is I started my family when I was in the legislature and expanded my family during the the time I was term limited but I'd always worked in the political realm and in the legal realm and in the advocacy realm so my my role, of course, is different during my terms of service, but my children have always seen me in the public eye. They've always experienced me working pretty long hours, both at the office and at home. And so it's just kind of part of their reality that both mom and dad work really, really hard. Mom's job is a little bit weirder because we see her on TV sometimes or we have to tag along to speeches that she has to make in the Capitol or around the community or we have to go knock doors with her on campaign time. But it's what they've only known because I had the opportunity to become a mom and expand my family during my service and as part of my my public life. So being close to home makes it a lot easier for me having a really strong partner at home with my husband is a blessing and makes my work possible. And then having kids who don't know a mom acting any other way, <laughs> um, that definitely helps too. So, you know, it's, it's just how I'm wired. It's just how I work. It's always been a part of how our life has been constructed. And for the most part, we have a really close-knit, loving set of friends and neighbors who also help out because it takes a village, right? And who also, I think, help to keep things lighter for our family when things get really heavy, just wrap us with love and support. And, you know, that kindness and that kind of dynamic makes the work really possible. But I also know on the flip side of things, how hard it is for families, for kids, for spouses, for partners, because you do work a lot and you do miss out on things at home from time to time. But it is such a unique honor and privilege that we work really hard to find the right balance. And sometimes we get it right and sometimes we don't. And when we don't, we hopefully have an opportunity to do better the next time. But I'm lucky. I'm in Lincoln. I have a great partner. And my kids know that I'm in public life. 
If you were given an unlimited budget for one evening that could only be spent in your district, where would you go and what would you do? Oh my goodness gracious. This is such an exciting question. Wow. Okay. Well, I mean, I know that every corner of Nebraska has special spaces and my colleagues have special spaces that they like to showcase in their districts. But of course, I'm biased towards North Lincoln's Fight and 46 legislative district. So what would be some of the our favorite ways to spend time there? Some of them have a price tag, some do not. For example, I live really, really close to East Campus. And East Campus is, I think, one of the most incredible spaces in Nebraska and a really truly hidden gems you know I describe it sometimes to to people from out of state as like it's like living next to Central Park we literally live super close a five-minute walk to the statewide arboretum and it is so beautifully curated it is rarely if ever busy it provides an incredible canopy of shade on the hottest of days and a continual seasonal show case from the backyard farmer's garden to the horticulture program to the sculptures just to an incredible array of beauty on east campus that i run through daily we walk with our kids through and ride bikes through at least on a weekly basis if not more frequently and it's like a block from the unl dairy store which is kind of a blessing and a curse to be that close to a delicious cheese and ice cream store but like that's just such a big part of our lives and such a beautiful part of North Lincoln. So I'd probably, you know, start off with like a a walk or a run or a bike ride through East Campus, maybe grab a delicious cup of coffee at Cultiva, which is like one of the really fun coffee shops in our, our neighborhood. You know, say, for example, we might run up to Havelock and hit the original Misty's and get a delicious steak or a French dip or something like that. Havelock is in a lot of ways really kind of the heart and soul of the district and and really brings that you know incredible tenacity and spirit from working class blue collar neighborhood kind of forward into our community and into my work. And then depending upon what day of the week it is, of course, we'd go to one of Nebraska's most iconic spaces to round out our day, and that's Memorial Stadium or down to Bob Devaney. And we are so pleased to have those spaces in our district and we cheer on the Huskers. So that would probably round out a full day. We'd be close to home, so we wouldn't probably have to get a hotel room. But those are the kinds of experiences that we frequently enjoy together and I think really, really help to highlight the district. There's also an array of awesome restaurants and a lot of unique cultural offerings in North Lincoln as well that you could definitely do like a taste of 27th Street or, you know, go deeper into a lot of the joys of of North Downtown. What is the best way for the public to communicate with your office? Now, this is something that has been very interesting to me with my return to the legislature. So social media wasn't really a thing as much when I served from 2006 to 2014, or definitely wasn't a thing for me. I mean, people were just starting to develop like, you know, websites and Facebook pages and things like this. But I don't think Twitter was really on the scene or it was just coming on the scene as I was finishing up that service or the 
the other social media, your Instagrams and Snapchats or whatever it is. And I'm kind of old school just in general and not particularly tech savvy. And I don't spend a lot of time on social media for a lot of different reasons. But this is something that is very interesting to me as I transition back. There are so many streams of communication coming at us every day. Letters, postcards, emails text, Facebook messages, phone calls, individual visits, the volume of communication I think has risen significantly. Chatter amongst colleagues in text threads or chatter with constituents or staff or lobby or what have you. There's just so many more ways to communicate that there's more to sort through to quickly assess what information is helpful for you in the moment. For me personally, email's great. I'm on email a lot. That's a great way to communicate. Phone calls and texts are also good. It's a little bit harder to wade through those because of the sheer volume. I'm pretty old school, so social media messages aren't the best way to communicate with me. I usually get around to seeing them, but usually after the fact. And always appreciate a handwritten letter or a postcard or a personal visit, but that's not going to be within the capacity of a lot of folks to effectuate. So a quick email, a sincere email really, really goes a long way with me. That's a great way to get information out. And different senators have different communication styles in terms of what resonates with them. But I also always appreciate this question. And again, my colleagues have different different styles or preferences. But I would say to any Nebraskan, it matters less how you communicate. It matters more that you do. If all that you can do is send a canned email from an interest group, Group that you believe in and belong to, send that. If all you can do is send a quick email that says, Senator Conrad, I'm your constituent. I care about this issue. I hope you vote this way. That's actually some of the most powerful communication that comes into my office. I think people think that reaching out to their senators doesn't matter. I think it does. I think many times citizens think, oh, I'm not a policy expert on this, so I really shouldn't weigh in. I completely disagree with that. As citizens and in a democracy, they are the experts and they should be communicating with us. And that is absolutely invaluable to how we do our work and cast our votes. So however people want to weigh in with their senators, they should. There's no wrong way to do it. And in fact, the most powerful communications that come to me are within the district from a voter who's simply sharing a point of view or a perspective and asking me to take a vote a certain way and or get back to them with my thinking on an issue. Some of those communications are absolutely the most powerful and effective. Now, I'm never going to tell people not to express themselves as they see fit. We're politicians. We can take it. But pro tip, maybe not too many swear words, maybe not all caps. Again, I appreciate passion. People have a First Amendment right to express themselves, but literally a simple, straightforward, sincere email is very, very powerful way to communicate with me. Lastly, what are your plans for the remainder of the interim? Yes. 
So I am very excited to be in the bits of a Nebraska summer. I personally like the polarity. I like the duality of a cold, cold winter and a hot, hot summer. So I'm a true Leo. I am very excited to be outside in the Nebraska sunshine as much as I can be. So we have been fishing and golfing and swimming as much as we can all summer. We did have some travel for work trips and for a family vacation that was a blast and now our kids we have two little ones they're back in school and so we're kind of settling back into the school time routine which is fabulous <laughs> for them and for me as a working parent but you know a typical day usually includes getting the kids off to school attending to work in meetings in the district or at the capitol and then we're really going deeper i think perhaps than before in terms of relationship building and policy work this interim and i I think those strategies are some of the key antidotes to help us move through the dysfunction and the rancor that plagued the 2023 legislative session. So it has been super fun to connect with colleagues in the legislature outside of the legislative session to get to know them better. There's been some organized social events. There's been some that have happened organically. I try and make it to as many of those as I can. And then I've been working with legislative research, committee colleagues, staff, constituents, you know, really to figure out where are those big issues that I think are going to move next year? Where can I make a positive difference on those issues? What bills do we want to introduce for next year? Conducting interim hearings with my colleagues, which are just starting to heat up as we head into September, October, and November. And so it's been a really, really busy interim, but it's also been very rewarding and fulfilling. And I feel like I'm learning more each day about my colleagues and about issues facing Nebraska. And, and that's really exhilarating. So I'm going to stay in the sunshine as much as I can. <laughs> and I'm just going to continue to nerd out in like my happy place, which is reading a huge stack of briefing materials on my back patio. And I'm old school. I like hard copies. I like to write notes on things, whether that's the volunteer firefighters newspaper or the dry bean commissions newsletter or the child care report from the Buffett Institute. If somebody sends me a hard copy report or publication, I will read it. And that makes me very, very happy. That's all the questions we had. Thank you, Senator, for your time. Yeah, thank you.